through Revelation 17. We're continuing our story. We're drawing towards the final chapters. We're a little ways to go yet, but we're, we're getting there. So you can open up. We're going to look at Revelation 17, uh, 1 to 18, the whole chapter in a moment. When I was in high school, I had a, had a job uh, in my senior year at Vine Floral in St. Catharines. Vine Floral was a floral shop. I drove delivery, also did other odd jobs, but primarily did delivery. Um, but one particular day, I want to tell you about an experience that I had. I was, I was around the, the shop that day. I had been asked to, to go and mow the lawn. And so I was out front mowing the lawn, and I happened to look up. Uh, I guess a delivery truck had pulled in beside the shop, so it was quite a ways down, probably 80, 90 feet from me at the end of the shop. It had pulled in beside the building. The back of the truck was still sticking out, and uh, I happened to glance up. The doors were open. The truck was initially stopped, but, but as I, I glanced up, I saw a man stepping out of the truck. As the truck started to roll backwards, he stepped out backwards with whatever it was he was unloading. Well, his foot hit the ground, and in a moment, the truck hit him, and, and it started picking up speed. And I was far enough away, I saw him go under and get crunched and dragged along the parking lot. I started to yell and run. And as the truck moved out from beside the building, I realized there was no driver inside. It must have slipped into gear. So I was running for the truck as it headed towards four lanes of traffic. This guy dragged along underneath, and all of a sudden, he popped out the front, and the truck sped across the street and Remarkably, he jumped up in shock, half of his face, like it was, it was, I had never seen anything like it. And he ran after the truck too, and we, we got to the other side of this. Fortunately, it didn't hit any cars on the way across, and it, it stopped after it jumped a curb and went in someone's front yard on the opposite side of the street. And, and he hit the deck, and I hollered for an ambulance. Uh, this was in the days before cell phones. Oh, strange calling for someone to call. It was a horrific thing to see, to see this truck hit him and crunch him and drag him along. This morning, we will have a similar experience as we gaze upon the message of Revelation 17. Not with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our imagination, we will witness what is about to happen to Rome Rome is about to get run over by a truck, if you will. It's about to face God's judgment, God's wrath. The revelation is an apocalypse, literally an unveiling. Through a series of visions Jesus gives to John, Jesus provides for John and his readers an opportunity to see what is really real, to see what is really true. To, to recognize that there's more going on than meets our eyes. But through the revelation, Jesus allows us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. And he allows us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. He, he allows us to see what is true right now. Now, something that we have to remember as we turn to this passage of Scripture is that this is God's Word first to a group of Christians to a series of churches in the Roman province of Asia around the year 96 AD. If we are to understand what God wants to say to us, we need to first understand this message to them. Now, we've discovered a number of things thus far in our study of the book of Revelation. 
the original recipients of this, the churches in the province of Asia, are about to. Some of them have already begun to experience suffering, but the suffering is about to get ramped up. Remember way back in Revelation 1.9, John introducing this book to his original readers. He wrote, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. John himself was suffering because of his faith. John, now in his mid-80s, a a disciple of Jesus, has been uh, deposited unceremoniously on this volcanic lump of rock, island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, 40 miles off the coast of the province of Asia, now modern-day Turkey. And Jesus reveals to him that a time of suffering, a great suffering, is about to come on the church. We have discovered that John's original hearers are about to experience great chaos brought about as the four horsemen of the apocalypse gallop across the surface of the planet. War, violence, famine, death. In Revelation, in the first interlude visions in Revelation chapter 7, Remember, in response to the great earthquake where the inhabitants of the earth cried out and said, who can stand? When God pours out his judgment, who can stand? Uh, the, the interlude visions of chapter 7 answer that, telling us the people of God can stand. Those who put their faith in Jesus can stand when God's judgment comes. Then in the second interlude vision, chapter 11, we learn that the followers of the Lamb are called to bear witness to Christ in the time of this suffering, in the face of this Uh, difficulty, this crushing pressure that is coming. They are to bear witness to Christ, and as they do so, they will be killed. Some of them will be killed by the beast that comes out of the abyss. Chapter 12 seeks to answer the question, why is it that those who follow the Lamb, who has won a victory, why is it that followers of the Lamb suffer so deeply, so greatly? And the answer is seen as we see this vision of a dragon who is God's enemy, who is filled with fury at his failure to defeat the Messiah, Christ. And he takes his anger, his wrath, out upon the followers of the Lamb, the descendants of the woman. We see that he does that through two agents, two beasts. A beast from the sea, political power, dragon-manipulated power of the state that has rejected God, and the beast from the earth, the false religion, deception. Uh, trying to lead them into compromise. Uh, Along the way, we have seen God's judgment poured out. We've we've seen the trumpet blasts, uh, judgments that were temporal, judgments that were partial. Each trumpet blast is also an invitation to come to the Lamb, to come to Jesus, to receive His grace, to receive His forgiveness, to become part of the redeemed. More recently, we encountered the seven bowls of God's wrath which are said to be the seven last plagues, because with them, God's wrath is completed. Now, when we came to the pouring out of the seventh bowl at the end of last chapter, last Sunday, we may well have expected, if we didn't know better, that the book of Revelation would come to an end at that point. I mean, these are the seven bowls of God's wrath. God's wrath has been poured out. The seventh bowl is poured out. And with the pouring out of these bowls, God's wrath is said to come to an end. It is to be completed. But the book doesn't end yet. Not yet. As we read on, I want you to grasp, I want you to understand, what what I want you to grasp and understand is is that what we are looking at today and next week is in fact another view, if you will, a a circling back to look at uh, the effects of that seventh bowl of God's wrath. 
I've said before that, that the revelation is not this, this timeline where we see A and then B and then C and then D, that, that revelation is communicating uh, theological truths, realities, and there are times where we circle back and we get a different perspective, a different view on something that we've already encountered. The seventh bowl was poured out at the end of chapter 16. Now in chapter 17 this week and chapter 18 next week, we will see that again from another perspective. So I want you to understand that. As we come back, the end of chapter 16, let me read this verse 19. The great city split into three parts. This is after the seventh bowl is poured out. And the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now chapter 17 and 18 will unpack that for us. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. I want to do four things with you this morning in the time we have together. First, I want to speak to some structural issues about these final chapters that we're moving into now in the Revelation. Second, I want to identify three sections that we can recognize within chapter 17 itself as we begin to explore. And then third, we'll walk through it 
uh, in some detail, digging in a little bit to some of what John is sharing here with us, uh, his, uh, the explanation of his vision, uh, the vision and the explanation of the vision that he receives from the angel. And then fourth, I want to reflect with you on some of the implications of this for our lives as hearers of the text today. So first, uh, regarding the structure of these final chapters of the Revelation, uh, a couple of different titles have been suggested for the book of Revelation over the centuries. They both arise out of these final chapters of the book. Uh, one of them is a tale of two cities. Uh, the original tale of two cities, the city of Babylon and the city, the new, the new Jerusalem, or a tale of two women, the harlot and the bride. Uh, what we're going to discover in these latter chapters as we move beginning chapter 15 and 16 that we looked at last week uh, is basically two storylines. Uh, the story of the new Jerusalem and, and the followers of the Lamb, those who are called the bride of Christ, and the story of the great city, Babylon, and all those who followed after the harlot and, and worshipped the beast. Those are the two stories, the story of the New Jerusalem, the story of Babylon, the story of the harlot, and the story of the bride. That's what we are about to see. In fact, we will notice as we walk through these chapters, uh, these two storylines, many echoes and similarities, how they, they in some ways parallel one another. Now, we're not going to get into a lot of that detail today, but, but we will see it in the weeks ahead. And I want to draw your attention to it so we're already paying attention now. What I do want to point out today, though, is that chapter 15 and 16... Uh, is, is how the chapters 15 and 16 from last week relate to the chapters that follow. Let me remind you of several things that we saw last week in chapters 15 and 16. The narrative began with God's people, uh, the redeemed, standing with the Lamb in victory on the edge of the sea, singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. That is, it intentionally echoes the Exodus story, the foundational story for God's people of their deliverance, of God's salvation. The Exodus event. Here, God's people, the redeemed, now experiencing a second Exodus. That is, God has carried them through all that they've faced in the holy war against the dragon. And now they stand in victory, in triumph, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb on the edge of the sea. Just as God's people sang a song of deliverance on the edge of the Red Sea after God brought them through it. Second, we came to the bowls of wrath being poured out. Seven bowls of wrath poured out on the earth. You might remember when the sixth bowl is poured out, what we encountered was not so much a plague, but rather the sixth bowl is poured out and three evil spirits come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, the, the beast from the earth. And they, they lead the kings of the earth into battle against God. This unholy trinity... This battle at Armageddon, that's what happens after the sixth bowl. And then third, the seventh bowl is poured out. And we read this, the great city is split into three. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fury. So here's the three things that we've had. God's redeemed singing, celebrating God's redemption. The, the sixth bowl is this, the, the gathering of the kings of the earth for the battle of Armageddon. And then the seventh bowl is poured out and it's, that's the judgment of God upon Rome. Now, beginning in chapter 17, we are going to view those same things again. A different view, a different angle, different perspective, only now in reverse order. Where There we saw the redeemed singing and the battle of Armageddon, uh, the king's gathering for that battle, and then judgment on Rome. Now, in chapter 17 and 18, we see the battle, sorry, the, the judgment of God upon Rome. And then we will see the final battle 
And then we will see God's redeemed singing in the New Jerusalem. So it, it follows exactly in reverse order. Uh, secondly, let's turn to the structure of chapter 17 itself. There are three parts that we may initially have trouble identifying. The first part is in verses 1 to 3a, the first part of verse 3. Uh, it, it serves as an introduction. There we encounter an angel. One of the seven angels who has poured out a bowl of God's wrath comes to John and says, uh, Come with me. Uh, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Uh, and then, then the, the angel takes John uh, in the spirit uh, to, to a wilderness where John will see the vision. So that's the introduction. Okay, One of the angels of the bulls of wrath calls to John, takes John, so John is set to see the vision. The second part of our text is the vision itself. Verse 3b through 6. That actually recounts for us what, what John saw. Uh, he sees a woman sitting on a beast. Now this is not the first woman he's encountered in his visions. Back in chapter 12, uh, he saw first uh, a woman who was clothed with the sun standing on the moon with 12 stars. Here he sees another woman, this time described as dressed in scarlet and purple, bedecked with precious jewelry. And we'll discover she's completely hammered, drunk. And John describes his vision, what he sees, and, and then it concludes, verse 6, by telling us that John was greatly astonished by what he saw. He is left wondering. The third part of our text is verses 7 uh, to the end of the chapter, and that is where the angel speaks, actually. The angel who has revealed this vision to John speaks and explains the images, the symbols. He interprets for John what he has seen. Now, that said, this portion of chapter 17 is probably the second most complicated part of the Revelation, despite the angel's explanation. But be that as it may, the angel explains to John what he has seen. And so those are the three parts, the introduction, John's vision proper, and the angel's explanation. So let's dive in now and look more closely. From the start, we need to remember that the Revelation is apocalyptic. That is, this is a form, a genre of literature that that uses symbols and images to communicate truth. So John here is describing symbols. He is describing images. He's describing signs, not the realities behind them. These symbols and images and signs point to truths, point to reality, but he's describing the symbols and images. We need to bear that in mind. Another thing we need to recognize is that, that sometimes the symbols and images in the Revelation are, are a little bit fluid. Is, that is, they're not always set in stone. We're going to see that really clearly here where one image, uh, according to the angel, represents two different things. So we will see that there's a certain fluidity we need to be prepared for as we try and discern what's going on. Let's focus on the text now, and we're going to begin by focusing on the woman. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. She's bedecked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Uh, these are images of luxury, wanton, unrestrained luxury, the, the luxury of Rome. And we will see this next week in chapter 18 that really focuses on uh, the economics, if you will, of the empire. But this is, this is a woman who is just over the top dressed luxuriously. She has in her hand a golden cup filled with her wickedness. The text says, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. She has this cup in her hand, and there is a name written on her forehead. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. It's quite the name tag on her forehead. 
The woman John sees in this vision is a prostitute, the mother of prostitutes. Uh, we, we read in our text that with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. Now, that's not referencing here specifically sexual sin, but rather the fact that she has misled, she has influenced the, kingdoms, uh, the kings of the earth into false worship, that is, into the worship of the beast. She has influenced them away from God towards false gods, towards non-gods. Not only has she influenced the kings of the earth, we also read that the inhabitants of the earth were drunk with the wine of her adulteries. That is, her influence has been pervasive in all the world. One further detail. As I noted earlier, she's completely drunk. But not on wine. She's drunk on the blood of the saints. What about the beast upon which she rides? The beast is the color of scarlet, and is covered with blasphemous names, has seven heads and ten horns. Heads represent authority. Horns are a sign of strength. Seven and ten are both numbers of completeness, of, of fullness. She, this, this beast is, is completely, uh, has, has complete authority, has, has complete strength, covered with blasphemous names. I mean, this description echoes exactly the description of the first beast in chapter 13, the beast out of the sea. The beast out of the sea, if you go back and look in chapter 13, had seven heads, ten horns, didn't have blasphemous names written on it, but spoke blasphemous words out of its mouth. So this beast is that beast from chapter 13, I would contend. Now you'll recall that that first beast out of the sea is an image, is a symbol of the state of political power unhinged from God. That is when, when the, the powers of state reject God, and seek to usurp the place of God, that's what we have in this beast. This is dragon-manipulated power of the state, political power. Now John takes this all in. Quite the vision. Remember, John's an old man at this point. He, he takes this in and, and he said, we, we read that he was astonished. He's left wondering. That's the conclusion of his vision in verse 6. Now, what are we to make of all this, the woman riding on this beast? Well, what is plainly obvious, I would suggest, let's start with one thing that is clear. The woman represents Rome, specifically the city of Rome, the heart of the empire, the seat of the emperors. Uh, notice again, the prostitute has a name on her forehead, Babylon the Great. Babylon is a code word, if you will throughout the Revelation, uh, it's, it's a word in this book with a long history. Do you remember back in, some of you will remember, Genesis chapter 11, the story of Babel, Babel? It's the root from which Babylon comes. The story in Genesis chapter 11 is humanity seeking to, uh, to reach heaven without God. They're going to they're build a tower to God. They're going to defy what God has said, and, and they rebel against Him. It is humanity rejecting God, humanity leaving God out of the equation. Babylon means a society without God. Daryl Johnson writes, At the time Jesus gave the revelation to John, Babylon was clearly manifested in the Roman Empire in, in Rome, the capital city. A city, a society apart from God, rejecting God, without God, that has left God out of the equation. Another clear indicator that this woman, the harlot, is in fact the heart of Rome, the city of Rome, the heart of the empire, is 
this indication in verse 9, we read about seven hills. Now, we, we might miss it, but any of the original readers would have immediately known that that was speaking of Rome because Rome, the city, topolo- the, the topology of it was that, that Rome comprised seven hills, seven mountains. They, they had a seven-mountain festival every year. Rome is the city of seven hills. So that's a clear reference to the city of Rome, the heart of the empire. Not only that, verse 18 speaks of it as the great city, and there was no other great city. Rome was the greatest empire at the time. And the the city of Rome was the greatest city. And the beast she rides is dragon-manipulated political power out from under God, rejecting God. So so what are we to make of the description of this woman, of, of Rome, essentially, as a prostitute? Well, to picture a city as a prostitute or a harlot has a long biblical precedent. We read this throughout the prophets. Listen to Isaiah 1.21, speaking of Jerusalem. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. In Ezekiel 16, God is recounting to His people how He found them helpless and adopted them, and how they have rejected him and gone into, uh, into unfaithfulness. We read this in verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. In Nahum 3, 1-4, Nineveh is called a prostitute because of her, uh, her barbarity, the way she mistreats people created in the image of God. In uh, Isaiah 23, the city of Tyre is called a prostitute because of her economic policies that, that exploit others in order to get rich. Even if you think of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, they have been unfaithful. Remember as Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said to the religious leaders, what do you want me to do with your king? And the Jewish high priest Caiaphas, do you remember what he said? We have no king but Caesar. Really, Caiaphas? What about Yahweh? Isn't Yahweh king? But when people reject God, when people are unfaithful to God, when they abuse other people, all these different ways that we can discover as we read through the prophets, the the description of those nations, those peoples as a prostitute gets at the fact that they have been unfaithful. All these things are going on in Rome. Rome is imaged as a harlot because of her idolatry, because of her injustice, because of her economic policies that raped the rest of the world for her own luxury. Scarlet and purple and all these jewelries, I mean, signs of wanton luxury. In the ancient world, if you wore these colors, you were filthy rich and you wanted others to know that. Rome also had authority over the nations. With the prostitute, the kings of the earth are said to have committed adultery. That is, Rome seduced the other nations, Rome exercised tremendous influence and corrupted the world through idolatry, injustice, and economic policies. And she is drunk with the blood of the saints. Already, you remember Antipas back in Pergamum. He has already lost his life. Remember the letter to the church in Pergamum? Jesus commends the church for being faithful even in the days of Antipas who was killed in their city. Already, believers have been put to death in This woman is drunk on the blood of the saints. She's responsible for the death of God's people. She's against them. Remember, the first beast, the beast from the sea, is the state 
out from under God, rejecting God, opposing the people of God, the followers of the Lamb. Now I said earlier that some of the images are fluid. We encounter that in, towards the end here in the angel's explanation, one of the most complex parts of Revelation. Seven heads are seven hills. That's a reference to the city of Rome very clearly. It also says that those seven heads are also seven kings, emperors. We read in, in verse 10 that five have fallen, one is, and one has not yet come. And then there will be an eighth king. Uh, the beast is said to be an eighth king. Now, now, what do we do with all of that? There's a lot going on there, and I want to suggest there's, there's a number of approaches that have been taken. Some people try and figure it out. Uh, in, in two main options that people tend to take. One is to see this as seven uh, great kingdoms of the world from the perspective of biblical history. Uh, that would mean that Egypt and Nineveh and Babylon and Persia and Greece are five kings, five kingdoms. The one that is now would be Rome, and then the seventh one that is to come is some future kingdom, but trying to figure out what that is gets a little tricky because that's been a while since Rome fell, and there have been quite a number of kingdoms. Uh, another approach that some people take is to try and figure this out as a reference to actual emperors of Rome. The only problem is there are a lot more than seven emperors for Rome. And so those attempts to do that get fairly creative. You, you don't count the guys who were just really emperors for a short time. There were about three emperors in one year at one point, so we don't count them. And, and where do you start? Do you start with the emperor who was on the throne when Jesus was born or, or, or the emperor who was on the throne when Jesus was killed? There are all kinds of creative stuff to try and figure out and try and make that work, but but it gets complicated, and I would suggest I don't think that's what's going on. The best way to understand, I would suggest, is that, again, this is not a statistic. It is a symbol. Seven is a number of completeness. Seven represents the whole sweep of Roman kings, Roman emperors. Five have already been. One is, and there is one more. In other words, the end is coming near. The end is coming near for Rome. Uh, this reference to an eighth king to come, what are we to make of that? Well, the beast once was, now is not, and will come again. I mentioned earlier in, uh, I think it was chapter 13, the, the myth about Nero. Nero committed suicide, but very early on after his death, there was a legend that grew up in Rome, and, and it's not suggesting John believed this legend, but it was certainly something that everyone would have been familiar with, and so he uses that in communicating here. There was this legend that Nero actually wasn't dead and that he was going to come back again. And Nero's death actually threw the Roman Empire into a great state of chaos. That's where those three emperors all uh, were emperors for a brief period of time over the course of a year. It looked like Rome was completely falling apart, and then Rome resurrected itself, if you will. There was a season of stability. So, this, I would suggest, gets at that legend. The beast once was, now is not, and will come again. Uh, the point is that this beast will keep coming back. Remember the harlot? Babylon? Babylon, the prostitute, is the mother of all prostitutes. That is, there will be more harlots. There will be more prostitutes. There will be more empires like Rome. The beast will keep coming back. That is something that we've discovered earlier in the Revelation. And so we need to hear that. Certainly here, the prostitute, the great city is Rome. But there will be other Romes. There will be other Babylons. 
Uh, next, we encounter the ten horns, which represent ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who will for one hour. Uh, a couple of things. The one hour is simply a reference to a short period of time. The ten kings, uh, I can't say what that is. Again, people can try and map that out historically and figure out who that is, but I think that's wrong-headed. Ten, again, is a number of completeness. I think this speaks of, of the, the, the puppet kings throughout the empire. Uh, but regardless of what John uh, meant, what we see is that these rulers are in collusion with the eighth king. They're in collusion with the, the beast from the sea, the beast here that the woman rides, in their opposition to the people of God, in their opposition to God. And the kings gather together to make war against the lamb. But get a load of this. They gather to make war against the lamb, and the lamb wins. How? simply by showing up in our text. If you look, look at what we read. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus wins simply by showing up because He is the King over every king. He is the Lord over every Lord. Their war against Him is futile. These kings are defeated. And then we come to something that is utterly unexpected, a twist in the text that we wouldn't have seen coming. The beast and the ten kings suddenly turn on the prostitute and destroy her. They turn on her, leave her destitute and naked. They eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Daryl Johnson writes this, Babylon, whatever form she takes, is drawing her authority and strength from the beast. True to his nature, the beast eventually turns on the woman and destroy, destroys her. A powerful image. Evil turns on itself. Evil implodes on itself. Evil self-destructs. God made it that way. Birds fly in the air. Fish swim in the water. Human beings worship someone or something. And evil turns in on itself. Here we find the point of this whole vision. Rome's ultimate demise and destruction. Rome is falling. Rome is about to encounter God's judgment. This vision reminds God's people that, that Rome stands under God's judgment, that, that all God's purposed will be accomplished. Remember the scroll of destiny? Remember back in Revelation 4 and 5? John was brought up to a doorway and he looks into heaven and he sees one glorious sitting on a throne that is above every other throne. And in his right hand is a scroll that is sealed with seven seals containing all of God's purposes, all of God's plans for judgment and blessing. And, and an angel cries out with a mighty voice, who is worthy to open the seals? And no one in all of creation was found. And John weeps. He weeps because there's no one who can break the seals. No one who can, can bring to fulfillment all of God's plans for judgment and for blessing. And then one of the 24 elders comes to John and touches him and says, John, don't weep. Look, the Lion of Judah. And John looks up and he sees the Lamb who was slain. He sees Jesus. Jesus who is worthy. Jesus will bring to completion. He will bring to fulfillment all of God's plans, all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing. This is a vision of God's judgment, that seventh bowl, judgment upon Rome for all of her wickedness, for all her adulteries, for, for all the pain that she has inflicted on the church. This vision reassures God's people that, that Rome will be judged and this vision encourages God's people to remain faithful and to endure. 
Now, some of what we are going to witness as we move forward in the text from here will bring us to the question about how what we're reading, uh, what part of it is about what happened temporally, that is, in history, and, and what, of, what part of this is speaking about the end. And the reality is that, that, that John expected, John received this vision, and John's expectation, and the church as they received this, they expected Rome to fall in history to come under God's judgment. And indeed, that happened. In the year 410, Alaric and the Goths pillaged and laid waste to the mighty empire of Rome. That day would come in history. God's announcement of temporal judgment in human history is cast against the backdrop of God's end time, His final eschatological judgment. That will become manifestly clear as we continue through this story, but what we need to understand is that there is both judgment here, historic judgment that fell on Rome that is being announced against the backdrop of God's eschatological judgment. The fourth thing we wanted to do is reflect with you on some of the implications for us that arise out of this text. I've reminded you numerous times that the revelation is not some secret code book that helps unpack the future so that we can no history in advance. Uh, The Revelation is a discipleship manual. Through this book, Jesus wants to encourage and help His followers to remain faithful. To remain faithful in the face of suffering. To remain faithful even in the face of potential martyrdom. And in the face of pressure remain faithful in the face of pressure to compromise. Here we encounter the tale of a woman, of a city, Babylon the harlot. Soon we will encounter the tale of a second city, a second woman, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. The the discipleship question we all face, every one of us faces, is captured brilliantly by Daryl Johnson when he writes this, toward which city is your city oriented? Is it oriented towards the great city or towards the holy city? Uh, And towards which city is your discipleship oriented? Is it oriented towards the harlot or towards the bride? We all face those questions. Towards which city is our city oriented? The city of Edmonton. To, To which woman is our discipleship oriented? My life and your life, towards the harlot or towards the bride of Christ. If you are with us this morning here, physically on site or online, and you've never repented and not put your faith in Jesus, I want to urge you this morning as you have opened your eyes, the eyes of your imagination, to, to see, to look upon this vision that John has shared with us. I want you to see that, that Babylon is falling. That God's judgment will fall upon the earth on every system that has excluded it. And that, to use the language of the revelation, the inhabitants of the earth, those who worship the beast, those who reject Christ, will fall under that same judgment. But it does not need to be that way. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, was slain out of love for the world. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. World there, it, it, it means the same thing as inhabitants of the earth. World is his humanity organized against God, without God. God so loved the world. He so loved humanity in rebellion against him that God's Son, Jesus, willingly came and he bore the judgment that we deserve. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus suffered for our sin, for all, all that is wrong in us, all that, the, the wrong that we do, that we think, our motives, everything that is wicked and sinful in us. Jesus suffered judgment for us. And, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that there's this great exchange. He became sin so that we might become righteousness. That is, Jesus clothes us with His perfection. That our identity is no longer one born out of who, what we've done, but now it is born out of Christ. We are clothed with Christ. We, are, we, we bear His righteousness. Our identity is utterly changed through faith in Him. And so if you have never done that, I urge you to gaze long and hard upon this vision. To see the end for Babylon and to turn your life over to Christ. To come to Him, repent, and believe. Come to Him. Discover His love. Discover His grace for you. For those of us who have repented and believed, those of us who are already followers of the Lamb, there is here both a powerful word of encouragement and a strong word of warning. First, the warning. We face those vital discipleship questions that Daryl Johnson asked that I read. To which city is your discipleship oriented? To which woman is your discipleship oriented? Babylon the harlot? Babylon the harlot is holding a cup filled in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Whatever Babylon we find ourselves in, the Babylon that we encounter in the text here and every Babylon like her exercises tremendous influence over our world, over the kings of the earth, over the inhabitants of the earth, leading people into false worship. That is to live for lesser things as if they're ultimate things. Leading people to reject God and God's ways leading them into unfaithfulness, leading people to compromise. Brothers and sisters, we are called to reject her ways. We are called to reject the compromises that she calls us to. And instead, to be shaped by Christ, to be shaped by the Lamb, to be shaped by His ways, by His Spirit, that we would grow and become increasingly by the power of His Spirit in light of the Gospel. His Spirit who indwells us, that we would grow in holiness, that we would grow in obedience, that we would be influenced not by Babylon, but by the world, but by the Word of God, by Christ who indwells us by His Spirit. Second, the word of encouragement, as we live lives that are countercultural, as we grow in godliness, as we live as holy women and holy men, students, as you go to high school and live as holy young men and women, you will experience rejection. You will experience opposition. You will find yourself in the crosshairs of the dragon who is out to steal, kill, and destroy. Remember the harlot was drunk on the blood of the saints. We will suffer 
perhaps not martyrdom, but who knows what the future holds. But here we need to find encouragement. We need not fear Babylon. Daryl Johnson writes this, Do not be afraid of Rome. Do not panic. Empires and cities can do all they want to reject and resist the rule of Jesus, but they cannot overcome Him. Babylon is falling. One day Jesus will come back, and no matter how invincible Babylon may appear when Jesus shows up, Babylon is done. So be faithful. Jesus provides the revelation to His people to prepare His hearers, to prepare us for what we are about to face at the hands of the Babylon in which we find ourselves. For the first recipients of this revelation, Rome was at the peak of its power and might and majesty. But Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see, so that they could see that He is on the throne. Pulls back the curtain so they could see the unseen reality of what yet lay in the future that Rome was about to experience God's judgment. Was about to get run over by a truck. That her end was coming. Jesus is calling us, brothers and sisters, calling His beloved people about to suffer and die. He's calling them to be faithful, to walk in obedience, to grow in holiness, to be courageous, even to the point of death. Because even if they die, they will stand with the redeemed in victory. They will stand together with the Lamb on the edge of the sea and sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. That is Jesus' call for us today, to be faithful, to be obedient, to grow in holiness by the power of His Spirit. Not in order that we'd be saved, but because we are saved through Christ's finished work. He fills us so that we can be shaped by Him, for Him, that we would be shaped by His Spirit, that we would reflect the character of His kingdom, and that we would remember who we are, redeemed by Christ, for Christ. That we stand already victorious with the Lamb. That we stand already and can sing the song of the redeemed, the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Amen.